Are you immersed in a sea of business advice and education, but not sure what to embark on first? Instead of adding to the ocean of information, we're here to help you navigate it like a pro. The Wayfinding Growth Podcast will help you take a deep dive into new actionable strategies, tools, and tactics to help you grow. So start charting a course for business growth as you explore a better way to grow further, faster, with your hosts, Remington Begg and George B. Thomas. What's up, viewers, listeners? It's your boy, George B. Thomas. Of course, I am not alone. I'm never alone. I'm always with somebody. And of course, maybe that's me, myself, and I. No, in this case, it's actually the man, the myth, the legend, Remington Begg, and a great guest, which I cannot wait to welcome, but I'm not going to welcome them. Remington is. Remington, how are you doing today, fine sir? I'm doing good. It's one of those Mondays that feels incredibly productive, and I hope the rest of the week just finishes up that way. You know, you never know. And I will say productivity depends on the decisions that we make, and oh. sometimes we need to make good decisions. Hey, why don't you go ahead and introduce today's topic and the guest so we can get this party started? Yeah. So today I have the pleasure of introducing Jay Akunzo. He is from the author of Break the Wheel, and what we're going to be talking today is how to make smart business decisions. Yeah, I can't wait for this. Jay, why don't you go ahead and tell the audience, the listeners, the viewers, a little bit about you, what you do, all those good things. So it's funny. I do so many things right now that uh, it's like I can't explain it at a cocktail party, right, unless you're like in the industry. So I think I'm speaking to my tribe so people might understand this. So I write books. First one you mentioned, Break the Wheel, came out in October. I give speeches. That's a big part of my business. And I also make docu-series for B2B clients. So that means audio or video series where I'm either the host, executive producer, or, or both – and we're creating an original series to hold people's attention, which I really feel is the new marketing mandate. It's not about acquiring attention. It's about holding it. So those are the three things I do. But if you actually want to draw like a through line across all three, it's pretty similar. It's I like to tell stories about the working world that make me feel and make the audience feel. Because I feel like so often we draw meaning from our work and very rarely does business content or career content match how we feel. At best, it's smart. But even then, it's pretty dry. So I like making what I call nutritious and delicious content about the business world. Oh, my goodness. Awesome. He said that a couple times. Yeah. <laughs> my goodness. Well, when you, when you have a smattering of weird things to do for a living, you have to get really good at that one simple question, which for yeah. me has become really difficult. It's like, hey, what do you do right. for a living? Right. I used to have a very simple answer. I would say, like, I'm a marketer. I'm a content marketer if, you, if you're in the industry. Right. And yep. I could cite a brand that people – maybe have heard of before. I worked in venture capital. I worked for Google. I worked for HubSpot. And like that was easy. Those days are long gone and probably never <laughs> coming back. <laughs> so talk to us a little bit about your backstory. Like what brought you to this point in your life professionally, uh, yeah. personally? I, I mentioned Google. That was my first job out of school. And it was I was a digital media strategist. So at this point in my life and at this point in the, the tech world's kind of uh, evolution, it was very much like – I mean not much has changed in many businesses. Executives or large companies and or their agencies were slow to adopt new digital technologies. And I don't mean the flavors of the week. I mean moving from completely analog, old-school ways of doing marketing to something new, more ongoing and evergreen. And so my job at Google was to push – uh, marketing executives and their agencies into the digital age a little bit more uh, swiftly with a little more clarity in how they make decisions, which definitely plugs into the book. But I think from a personal level, I was one of those kids that like did the right things in school, got the grades, joined the clubs, led the clubs. And when I got this job at Google, I was like, okay, good. I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, using air quotes for the people listening, doing what I'm supposed to do. And I was miserable. Like I hated the job at Google because it wasn't creative. I wasn't building anything. I was just sort of a tiny grain of sand on this giant beach that was Google back then, which has you know, even gotten bigger today, obviously. And I, my brain was not prepared for that. Like I was so used to doing what you're supposed to do, doing what the conventional path looked like as a, as a way to eventually find happiness that I was thrown way off and was thrashing and very upset when I didn't like the job that I was supposed to like. Like this is mecca in tech, especially before startups were as sexy as they are today. This was where you're supposed to be and I, I, I hated it. And worse, I, I left and I had friends that still liked it. And I couldn't make sense of that either. So it was a real awakening for me that like your career is not about following any path laid out for some by somebody else or multiple somebodies. Your career is this constant exercise in self-awareness and pursuing that. So I think I look back at that experience and I'm grateful for it in many ways. But, but one way that's come out more recently with the book was 
it taught me that self and situational awareness can be just as, if not more powerful than any kind of like best practice or conventional approach. Okay, I, I gotta be honest. I might be a little giddy already at the beginning of this episode because this is like crazy. First of all, you can tell that Jay is a content connoisseur. Like we've heard the word Mecca, Nirvana, thrashing. Like he's, he, he obviously is an amazing storyteller. And, and you know, typically Jay, we would be like, well, how do you make a living? But I think we understand how you make a living from the beginning thus far. And really what I want to dive into because just to hear you talk about Google, uh, and history, I want to start diving into because you have HubSpot under your belt too. Which, by the way, not that I'm a HubSpot homer, but I love me some HubSpot, right? So you you have these waypoints, these milestones that have happened in your life. Maybe talk around some of those and like decision making that have just taken you to these different levels of thinking and ability to transition or change when needed. So I mean, let's start with the with the Google experience and why. I left because it was I had a bunch of friends back then who left for different reasons. I met my wife at Google and she left to get a Ph.D. in psychology. And so you can think to yourself, OK, doing sales at Google, getting a Ph.D. in psychology, there's probably some some squishier lessons you can draw from one to the other. But it seems obvious that she would leave and pursue a different path. I stayed in tech. I went to a very small startup and switched from sales to content marketing, found that creative path to build stuff, to make things people like versus, you know, trying to force my way into people's lives with interruptive tactics or whatever. And you can you can kind of see that I, I stayed almost in the same community, but I left the company that ostensibly you're supposed to get to. Right. Like that's like the, supposed to be the pinnacle. And there's this one moment that I like to talk about this one one milestone, if you will, or one realization uh, about why I left. And why I actually felt clarity after not feeling it at all in the decisions I was making. So somebody sent me – I was working for Google. Someone sent me a YouTube video. I can't for the life of me remember what it was. But um, it was one of those videos we all have. I'm sure you guys have experienced these where you watch it like five times in a row. You know, one of those amazing videos, whatever it was. Uh, for some reason, I want to say it was maybe maybe Kid President's pep talk. Do you guys know that video? But I think that might have come out after I left Google. But that, that's one of my favorite videos. Anyway – I went home that day. I had three roommates at the time living in the in the Boston area. And I was like, you guys, greatest video you will ever see. And I like hyped it. I oversold it to them. And right as I put the laptop down on the table and I slowly opened it and they're leaning in. It's the height of their anticipation. I go to the URL. I click play on the video. And what happens at this moment of like intense interest from all of us? A video ad played, a pre-roll ad, right? <laughs> and – and I felt like an idiot because I was like, oh, uh, okay, just wait 30 seconds and then, you know, I promise. So how was your day? Right? Like <laughs> I, I felt awful. There was no skip button back then, by the way. Um, but I had a really weird thought, which was, damn it, Eric. Because Eric was my colleague at Google who sold this advertiser on the idea of YouTube. And like, that's a, that's a ter that's a weird thought to have. But then it, it fought, what followed was a terrible sinking feeling in my gut, which was like, well, well, I have the same job at Google that Eric has, mm. which means somebody somewhere was having a terrible experience in their day mm. and they didn't know it, but I was responsible. And by the way, with Google and YouTube scale, that wasn't one person, right? That was like thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. Honestly, like I look back and I'm like, probably because of my work, millions of people had a worse moment in their day, right? And we justify that stuff by shrugging and being like, man, that's the cost of doing business or man, that tactic works. But you know, so many marketers are willing to annoy the many to convert the few. I am not willing to do that. Like, especially because of content marketing and inbound and experience-based things that we do today. I think it's about turning previously, you know, small likelihood to succeed, you know, low probability events into higher probability events, things people actually want. And, and so I didn't realize that at the time, but that's why I was so unhappy at Google is because I was trying to make people want stuff and I'm really wired to make stuff people want. And so I quit. I left and I, I got into content marketing. And I never looked back. So that's like one of those big milestones that I, I'll never forget. Okay, Remington, first of all, I know this is your, like, you're supposed to ask the question next, but I got, I always do this. I got to pause. Like, literally, right now, stop, rewind like 45 seconds from the point that I'm talking, right? 45 seconds. Listen to how those words played with each other and the exact opposites of what Jay was doing to what Jay wants and should and could and can and is doing. Literally, from now, 45 seconds. Hit the button twice. Okay, Remington, it's your show again. 
I've heard I've heard a variation of that story, and it really stuck with me as well. <clears throat> I think it was on uh, Databox, uh, the Databox podcast you did with John Benini. Um, so that's fun to hear it again because it got a little, couple of sound bites out of that as well. But so the next section here, we get to roll into charting the course. And of course, this would be charting the course for making smart business decisions. So as we kind of dig deep in this, feel free you know, to break up, break the wheel and some of the excerpts you've gotten that. But how are people or businesses making decisions right now, um, in your opinion? Yeah, I, this the whole journey to this book started like two and a half years ago. I wrote an article called How to Work in Marketing When You're Bothered by Suck. And it was basically based on this. I had this like really heart to heart moment with a friend over beers where I was so disillusioned by so much of the marketing world. You know, people willing to do things that clearly are hollow. Clearly, they're doing it to game a system and they have no bones about it, no scruples because they're like, well, 2% of these people will end up coming over to my website. And of that 2%, like they start to do the math. And I'm looking at the other people that you annoyed. And I'm like, how do you live with yourself? Like, also, this work is terrible. Like, you're doing it because someone else said it works. It, it just, I, it drove me bonkers. Um, and so I wrote this post. I started to build a little bit of a, a tribe around my podcast uh, called Unthinkable. And slowly, over that two and a half year period, I started to try to diagnose like, why is there so much commodity? work, especially in the content marketing sector where I came from. But in general, why is there so much copycat commodity stuff? And I think it's because it's never been easier to be average than right now. Because if you don't have an idea, you can go find someone else's. If you want to try and justify your work to your boss, you can cling to a precedent or find a case study really easily or point to a guru the boss admires and be like, well, they said do it this way. So I'm protected now, even though it didn't work or even though it interrupted someone's day in a harsh way. They said it worked, right? Like you can't blame me. It's it's the trend. It's the tactic. Mm. And so when I was researching for the book, I was like, okay, well, to figure this out, I'm going to tell a lot of stories, see if I find commonalities and when they make poor decisions. And I'm going to see if I can go to the psychology world and find some scientific reasons for this. And I found three. So the first way we make decisions is we prioritize best practices that carry weight in our minds. This is like the conventional wisdom, the thing that has been done for years, or we shrug and we're like, I don't know why we do it that way. That's just how we do things around here. And there's a concept called Pike syndrome that I uncovered in the research, which is a fancy, clever name, memorable name for a concept called learned helplessness. Um, so what happens is as we get told over and over again, there's a right and a wrong answer, especially from our, our days in school, we start to believe that that's true in every complex and creative task we encounter where the real answer is it depends. There is no right, one right way. It's it depends. It depends on you and your team and your specific customers, your specific resources, your context. But we throw that out and we go seeking our answers out there in some kind of ephemeral way because we've learned this helplessness. And the phrase Pike syndrome jumped out at me right away. And I was like, oh, what's that? There was a scientific experiment where if you drop minnows in a tank, the pike that was previously in that tank, it's like a hunter type fish, would eat the minnows right away unless you lowered them in in like a glass cup. In which case the pike would smash up against that cup over and over again until he trained himself not to pursue minnows. And if you remove the cup, the minnows could swim all around the tank and the pike wouldn't look at them at all. And so this explains this idea of learned helplessness where just like the pike, like tasty little morsels are right in front of us. They're not fish, but they're details. They're firsthand details about ourselves, about our mm. audience, about our resources. And if we just started with our context, we would find better information or at least inform those best practices with those firsthand bits of information and use these variables that no expert knows when they say you have to do it this way as a marketer, sure. right? So Pike syndrome is one very terrible phenomenon that I uncovered that explains how we make decisions. So I found three of these, but that, that one's a big one that jumps out. So I, I want you maybe to even explain another one of those because my, my question to you, Jay, is – because we're unpacking a lot of information that people might not normally pay attention to. And so maybe give us another one of the three. Um, because by the way, people, you go read the book. I'm just saying. Anyway, um, so, so <laughs> give us, yeah, give us one more of the three yep. and then, and kind of explain to the audience, like, why does this even matter? Like, why does knowing these three things matter moving forward for them? The point is not to find best practices. We've made our work that. But that is not the goal. The real goal is to find the best approach for you. And there are small and big ways that the best practice and the best approach for you are often different. And we've never really been taught 
how to bridge that gap. Mm-hmm. We've never been told that there is a difference, and we certainly don't have a process, a system for making better decisions based on our situation instead of some abstract idea, right? Because eventually you you look at the blog post on Medium or the tips from a podcast or a book, and you have to go back to work and implement them. And something about that context where you're implementing the work is different or unaccounted for in theory, in the abstract, right? And and a very obvious one is you and your team. You don't exist in anyone else's context, right? But I mentioned two other parts of your context too. In addition to you, there's your customers, your specific audience. Then there's your resources, which is your own means to make the work. And I think those three things form the basis of a good decision-making process, not the precedent or the trend or the conventional wisdom that we get so caught up in. So, so that, to answer your question, George, is, is why this matters. Um, I'll give you the uh, second of the third phenomenon, psychological reasons why we make decisions in poor ways. Um, it's called cultural fluency. This one's really hidden. It's really hard to break from. And cultural fluency is basically your behavior that unfolds when reality is proceeding as you, you expect. So when things become mindless, rote, or routine – you fall into stale patterns, right? You take the same route to work. You're not as mindful. You do the same tactic every day. You're not as mindful. All these mm-hmm. things in our work that are designed to be repetitive, which is a lot of business thinking is like put the thing on repeat that works. They actually stop working as well. They decay mm-hmm. over time because you're no longer aware of like what is actually the reason we're doing this and what should we evolve about this thing as contexts change, as time changes, my fa- one of my favorite stories about this comes from a guy named Jim Murray in Chicago. So the guy, he, he's a psychologist, and he uncovered this idea of cultural fluency. And he went to his, his family picnic, and he said to his family, I'm going to break you up into two groups. Half the group is going to get 4th of July plates because it was the 4th of July with like fireworks on it. Half the group is going to get white plates. And then he measured how much food they took. He didn't tell them why they, they were running this experiment, but basically he was experimenting on his friends. And the group with the white plates took less food than the group with the festive plates. And he thought, huh, that's interesting. When everything seems as it should, you just kind of go with the flow. And it's culturally fluent in the United States to gorge yourself on the 4th of July, right? Mm. But the people with the white plates had one tiny detail slightly different than their peers. And suddenly they were like a little bit more aware, mostly subconsciously. They didn't stop and think, I should take less food. But he ran this again and again at different holidays. And he switched up the plates. Sometimes they were authentic to that holiday. Sometimes they were way out of place. But once he discovered this consistency, he realized that if one detail becomes a little bit out of place, that's all it takes for us to snap out of our mindlessness, to break from cultural fluency, and just become aware of what we're actually doing. And now, like, we in the marketing world don't have plates, but I think our equivalent is open-ended questions, right? The one we're asked – the one we're told to ask the most is why, but, like, there are myriad open-ended questions we can ask ourselves – that help us think to you know ourselves and each other, well, maybe I actually don't have the answer. Maybe we shouldn't just put this on repeat. Why are we doing it this way? I actually don't know. You know, An open-ended question needs reflection or testing to answer. It doesn't need a guru or a blueprint, right? So cultural fluency is a very difficult thing to escape from because you're part of a team, you're part of a culture, but to break from it, all you need to do, I think, is ask an open-ended question and basically become an investigator instead of an expert, right? You ask questions instead of glom on to answers. When we're talking about trying to make these decisions and break out of the norm, be more creative, how can we how can we hack this information to get that context and actually make better decisions as an as a for professionally or as a company? Yeah. So so now here's where I could be a hypocrite. Right. Like I'm, I'm asking you to question conventional thinking. Yep. And in the book, I can't say. So here are my seven simple steps to question conventional sure. thinking because I'm providing another best practice. Right. So <laughs> so through through lots of, of research and, and probably 150 stories or so over a couple of years, I was like, well, what are the questions all these people seem to ask themselves when they broke from conventional thinking that if you and I and, and George asked these these questions of each other, like we would actually all come up with different answers, right? So how do we all do work uniquely ourselves and authentic to our context and not just copy each other? Uh, and so the shorthand for how I think we should make decisions is to ask two questions of each part of your context. So I call it my two by three model, two questions a piece of the three parts of your context. And there's really only two types of questions to ask. So one is called a trigger question, 
That's an open-ended question. So when you're talking to your team and you're like, well, how can we authentically do our own version of this work? Instead of saying, what does the expert say? or What have we done in the past? You can ask a trigger question, which literally sparks your curiosity. It starts your investigation, such as what's our aspiration as a team? Well, I can't Google that. I can't look for some ultimate guide that tells me that. We have to reflect on who we are as people and what we want to do for our business, for our customers, et cetera. So the trigger question starts your investigation. Then you have a confirmation question, which confirms that you actually have evidence to pursue. You actually can go in this path, even if the path bucks the trend. So if you're talking to your team again, what's our aspiration? Well, we want to be the world's most entertaining marketing podcast. Okay, great. What is the evidence we have? In other words, the confirmation question, what's our unfair advantage for being the most entertaining? Well, maybe you're actually not funny people, but you look at entertaining podcasts and you're like, they're all funny. It'd be a terrible idea for you to try to be funny. But maybe if you start reflecting on who you are and what your unique unfair advantage is, you can confirm actually we should pursue this path, but in our own unique way, we are really inquisitive people. So we're going to be masters of interviewing. We're going to be more like Terry Gross in NPR senses than we are uh, Remington and George in the marketing world, right? Whatever the case. So the way to make better decisions is to act like an investigator. And the way to be an investigator is to ask first an open-ended question and then a question that confirms your investigations on the right path. I call that a trigger question and a confirmation question. A lot of people, if you're a marketing speaker, an author, or if whatever your domain is, you start to talk about the strategies and the tactics and the tools and technologies. You start to talk about industry echo chamber stuff. But I feel like if you address the people, you address the work, right? And therefore the results. And so if you back all the way up or you distill it down to first principles, like mindset becomes so important to then building back up from your mindset to the insights you now have to the work that follows. And, but we start at that last layer. You know, it's like building a house on sand. I think we should start with the foundation. Then you can build whatever the hell you want and it'll be much stronger. I think there's a couple things we have to do. So the first is we have to admit that we want to do our best work, but that we're not actually mapping that goal to our behavior. So what I mean by that is if you think of what a best practice is, it's something that works either in general or on average or worked for someone else, right? So if you just look reality in the eye, you have to think that what worked in the past cannot necessarily work as well in the present or what works for George is not necessarily going to work for me. And the problem is we get on board with that, I think intellectually, maybe even emotionally we're invested in that idea. Hell yeah, Jay. But the problem is we don't have anything to fill in that gap now, right? It's so concrete to say these tips and tricks make sense. I'm going to follow them because look how concrete they are. And they got this result in that article. Okay, I'm going to follow that. It's very squishy and open-ended to do what I propose in the book, which is trust your intuition, right? Mm -hmm. And so a big hurdle in the book was taking intuition out of this myth, this mythical idea of the muse or this gift you're given and make it concrete. And so I like journeyed through history looking at who, how, who, who defines intuition and how – and also what do actual scientists think of intuition and what do they research? And where we landed was basically if you think of intuition not as an instant lightning strike moment, but as the root of the word from Latin implies, it means to consider, intuary, to consider. Now the skill is not following someone's blueprint. It's not glomming onto the trend of the week. It's considering your own environment. In other words, thinking for yourself, right? So – I don't think it takes a giant leap to be like, yes, it's very important to think for yourself. I do think we don't have a system in place to do that quite like we do following the conventional thinking. So that is the output of my book is like, what is a system we can put in place to actually think for ourselves, trust our intuition in a concrete way? I propose six different questions, but by also teaching you the types of questions these are, I also challenge readers to come up with their own. Now we have like a filter around our minds where any idea, any best practice, any trend has to go through that filter first for it to make sense for us. 
So, so that is the switch. It's from expert to investigator, but really it's putting a system in place to trust your intuition like a tool, like a practical thing, not like some squishy, open-ended idea, and certainly not like I'm going to be a rebel and reject the convention for who knows why. Like we have results <laughs> to, to get, right? We have finite resources to work in. Let's get to work in a practical way. Yeah, so that brings up that that final piece brings up a really great point, um, and I love the idea from going to you know from expert to investigator. And George and I have talked about this, like always being curious, you know, um, and really kind of keep that keep that momentum going. So I'm a big SOP guy, right? So internal best practices. So, but at the same time, um, I really value what you're saying in regards to like the context of things. And so putting down some kind of a foundational layer of this is how it has been done. And for the record, all of our SOPs are editable by anyone, right? To further, further optimize and, and integrate. But how does an organization, and this might be an opinion piece here, but how does an organization start to transition or leverage that to empower their yep. empower their people to ask and make sure they have the context, but then also consider their own environment. Because I think there's for for someone that is very socially aware, that's that's amazing. But I could also see the inverse where you have people that may not have as much experience to be able to identify because I think that's a learned skill in some cases, especially after you come out of school where everything's right or wrong. Yeah. How society is for that point right now. But, you know, it how do you how do you start to enable as an organization your people yeah. to be able to kind of pivot in that direction? So my favorite story of leadership and and helping the team develop their self-awareness and situational awareness proactively. Because like you said, it's often reactive. It's like I've worked for 20 years and now I have self-awareness and yep. it kind of happened to you. How do you happen to the work? How do you get proactive, right? right? So uh, Lisa Schneider, the chief digital officer at, at Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, is my favorite example from the book about someone who's really good at this. So when she took over the job, um, we can use Twitter as an easy example, but it was endemic to their whole marketing team. They were very uh, redundant and actually in her words stayed. She works for the dictionary. So she's good. She's good with words. So she stayed and she said their, their work was stayed and predictable because on Twitter, they would like automate away any personality and any creativity. You know, in the morning it was a word of the day and at night it was a quiz and they never broke from that pattern, even though it really wasn't working. Right. Why? It was a best practice. Why? It was because of how they did things around, you know, that's how we do things around here. And so what she did was she looked at the difference between her team is people and her team is marketers. It's such a weird thing to say, right? There shouldn't be really a, a difference because we're all people in our jobs. But she noticed that the team internally was really witty and really warm, but externally that was removed. And so she said to her team, let's show the world how fun and relevant we really are. Now, this made sense for two reasons. Number one is the team was fun, right? But what about the relevant piece? Well, while we all want relevancy, we don't necessarily have to be fun publicly to get that relevancy. But if you look at a dictionary, there's a, a, a title at the dictionary called lexicographer, which is a dictionary editor. Mm -hmm. Unlike what we think, where a lexicographer documents rules to follow, actually a dictionary editor documents the popular use of language. In other words, you have to be up on pop culture. That's why all these mm -hmm. weird slang words eventually do get into the dictionary, like on right. fleek. Um, and so they, it makes sense for the people and the brand that they would show the world how fun and relevant they are because that's the job and that's the people doing the job. So instead of looking at some methodology or trend, Lisa oriented them around what I'd call an aspirational anchor. You know, the first variable of her context was her team, the people doing the work. So she said, let's show the world how fun and relevant we are. And now Remington to your question, any tactic, any best practice, any individual they hire – they have to press their work through that filter. Like, does this make sense for us or not? Well, we're trying to show the world how fun and relevant we are. Does this make sense? Automating away that work makes no sense. Finding our tone of voice, maybe documenting it internally, that makes a world of sense. So to your SOPs, you actually now have this underpinning decision-making engine, so to speak, in the form mm -hmm. of an aspiration that allows you to look at an SOP and be like, okay, we found this framework. Given this new context, does it make sense any longer or should we update it? Right. Because you're not looking to just question everything and be a pain in the butt. You're looking mm. to say, we're trying to achieve this together. Some things we're doing make sense. Some things don't. We have to evolve the ones that don't. And the only way you can do that is to understand what you're all about. My, <laughs> see, I, I love this stuff because 
like as you were talking through that, Jay, the word authenticity, right? And not only just being who you are, but showing the world who you are and not letting things get in the way of that um, just was ringing through to me. Um, you know, here's the thing. I love – I want to go back actually. I'm going back to go forward and that is I want to go into the section that is the navigational tools. And Jay, before Remington's question, you actually said uh, you need to have a system in place and there's six questions that I uh, used to do this. So typically uh, best practices for us is to ask is there any digital or physical tools that one would use when trying to make best practices. In your case, I'm just going to simply say if there's anything in addition to the system that you have kind of talked about or created and the six questions that all of us should be playing with, please share that but share any additional information in this section as well to really help us kind of leverage uh, getting out of being right. stale or uh, stayed. I don't right. even know. I'm going to look up that yeah. word, by the way. When yeah. it's right. Stayed, over. bland, predictable. Yeah, Lisa Lisa knows her way around words. So the answer here is a little bit ephemeral. Like we need, we don't need to you know document this knowledge I'm proposing in a given tool, right? It's about documenting it, period. Okay. So what I mean by that is if you were to understand fully your team and how unique they can be and the traits you want to deploy in the work, the self-awareness, then you would understand your customer. Like what insight do you have around the customer? And I go into this huge exploration in the book about how to pull out what I call first principle insights. Like what are they really after that our marketing serves? You know, nobody buys a better pillow. They're buying a better night's sleep, that kind of thing. What's the first principle? So I go into a system for how to do that. And then I go into a system for how to understand your resources and navigate them well. Versus kicking and screaming and wishing we had more time and budget and team because we all do, right? But the reality is we'll always have constraints. So who has done well by operating within those constraints and how do you identify yours and actually innovate within the box instead of outside the box? Um, again, science and story both come into play there. But documenting these three things in a Google Doc or Trello or a tool I like called Tetra which is a tech company out of Boston. Yeah, Love them. hell yeah, Tetra's great, right? Internal knowledge management and documentation helps you align and scale. Um, and so if you leave the book and you're like, I feel great, but my team, but my boss, usually the issue is hopefully give them the book, right? But But more specifically, you haven't documented a system for making decisions or the system I propose. Either way, you have to actually like spend time on how will we vet possibilities and ideas and make decisions the way you would how will we run our Twitter handle, our email, right? I, I saw a stat recently. It's like an adult in the workplace makes 35,000 choices a day, which is insane, right? That's as simple as like the words you use. So there's tons there, but it could be as big as like we're going to adopt a new approach here. Mm -hmm. And so often we have like documentation or a blueprint for how to execute on the surface level stuff, right? How to be on that channel, how to grow your leads, whatever. But very rarely do we have a filter in place, a system in place for how we make decisions in the first place. But mm. that's that precludes the tactic, right? That precludes the strategy we put in place. And so I think that that would be the missing piece. And George, to answer your question, you have to document that like you would any other tactic. That kind of ties into what we were talking about this morning, George, about like I had fully defined out all the steps to do something and you're like, that's awesome. But where did this information come from? <laughs> you know, so I mean, it's kind of, yeah. yeah. it's really kind of similar in that regard. So um, the the prelude, I think is, is pretty awesome. In that regard. You know, Thanks look, we, sure. we talk about editorial missions as content marketers as a really easy way to start making better decisions. And that enables your team, whether they're junior or senior, to bring you ideas, to find better insights from the audience, to basically start doing the work proactively instead of reactively. Mm -hmm. And and that's great. But I think we talk when we talk about mission or editorial mission statements or vision statements, I think we're only going part of the way there, mm. right? Because I think usually it's a mashup of like, your idea for the work and maybe what the customer wants and outcomes the mission statement. But mm -hmm. I think that's the right direction, right? It's like these fundamental ideas written out, which I try to get more detail around in the book than just a mission statement or an editorial mission, so to speak. But it, that's yeah. the right idea. It's like, like you have this filter set up and now you can make decisions swiftly, proactively, and, and in a way that makes sense for you instead of in general, like some competitor wrote about doing it that way. Yeah. 
No, I like that. Hell, I'm kind of doing that with our job descriptions right now. We I announced to the group that um, I'm taking all the little bullet points on everything that's that is in a job description. And um, I've heard the term. I think you've used it a couple times, um, but like guardrails and goalposts. But yeah. essentially making essentially making all of the um, job descriptions have their own mission and have their own effectiveness, like like the almost like core values, if you will, for right. every position right. that kind of come up to the other one. So we're not saying all the things that happen because the one thing we know in agency life is things change. Like that's right. like <laughs> that's that's just it. But um, making it so that things are a little bit wider, yeah, uh, I think is is incredibly important. Yeah, uh, but I really like that idea. That's a great example. Like a job description, I think oftentimes when you're not uh, solely responsible for talent at your company, if you have multiple hats you wear, the hiring process should be more important on your plate than it usually is, right? Mm -hmm. But you're like, I have to get back to the real work, so I have to hire quickly. Or so you look across the aisle and you're like, what do you do to write a job description? And we why like why are the most creative companies in the world that have a strong tone of voice and a real clarity around why they do the work they do and what their marketing means for the brand? Why are they writing the most boring job descriptions mm. ever, right? It's because they're looking at the convention and they're like, well, that's supposedly what works. But if right. they put a little more critical thought into how would this job description look in our world? How do you contextualize the best practice? Now they might hire better candidates. They might actually weed out candidates that aren't a fit quicker, thus saving themselves mm -hmm. time. Like I think everything gets better when you sort of align and we always talk about aligning the team and the mission, but align to your situation first. Then if you need something, oh my gosh, what a beautiful era we live in. All that external information is on demand and serves yeah. you instead of you panic reading or panic getting some resource. Absolutely. Anything else to ask questions about in this part, Mr. George? You know, I – man – I, I mean, you have that look. Yeah, yeah like you I, want to I ask do. I do. Here's here's <laughs> the thing. I do want to ask a question, but I I literally do not know like the question in which I want to ask because I yeah I I feel like um this section right here could go like almost its own Forever. podcast episode. Yeah. Right. Because there there's like when you start to talk about surface level. Um, like my mind, Jay, and I don't want to take us down. Uh, well, maybe Rebel. I do, right? But I could do. Like, I'm happy. Put yeah. me in any box, any direction. I want to serve the <laughs> audience. Like, let me know. So, so when I think about this, and we're talking about surface level, um, because again, right? Remember, we were talking about, uh, you know, a topic, and I was like, well, I I went this way. Like, this is how you always have to be a learner. Um, and when you said the words surface level to me. Um, my mind immediately went to the conversation around, yeah, but how do you get people to want to do more than what they're paid to do? Because yeah. if you're going to document past the surface level, you've, you've got to want to get there. Like, right. and I don't know how to ask the question of like, how do you get people to give a shit? Like, cause that's really where <laughs> I wanted to go with it. Interesting. I'm happy to talk to that. I mean, yeah. I feel like there's – I can – yeah, I, like we can go down that rabbit. That's not something I normally address and I think it precludes the lessons of the book. So I'm happy to go down that rabbit hole. Yeah. 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 Let's expand upon that a couple – we got okay. a couple couple minutes here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because now, now I'm curious. <laughs> <laughs> well, you want me to talk to something specific or do you want me to just have at that? Yeah, no. Just have at that. That's cool. Okay. So uh, I go – I just looked this up because I always get this quote wrong. But I go right to that um, – that quote about how to motivate people, right? If you want to build a ship, I'm going to read it because I always mess it yeah, up. If you want right. to build a ship, don't drum up people that collect wood. Don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. When I talk about the lessons of my book, when I talk about this two by three decision-making process, I am not talking about here's my prescription, go follow it. I'm talking about here's the frameworks, go fill them in, right? Guardrails and goalposts. Here are the six questions, ask them of your specific situation. You're going to come up with different answers than even the competitor down the hall that looks very similar to you. And the first section, the first part of your decision is to talk through what is our aspirational anchor, which mm -hmm. is our intent for the future, you know, a milestone, a goal, an output, but also our hunger that we have today. And what that does, rather than set a goal for your team, and then it's back to them taking shortcuts, George, because they don't want to work extra hard or whatever. They're not inspired. How do you give them to give a damn, get them to give a damn? 
Now you're aligning around, yeah, the intent for the future and the behavior change you need to get there. So back to Lisa mm-hmm. Schneider as the easy example. Let's show the world how fun and relevant we are. Okay, well, our voice is too bland. We have to fix that. We have to invest our full selves in the work in order to manifest that voice to show the world how fun and relevant we are. You start orienting around things that are internal and contextual instead of the shortcut, the cheat, the hack, the blueprint that you can shut your mind off and just follow. And that creates a lot of commodity work. So my pithy answer here is how do you get people to give a damn? Two things. You need to make sure you hire the right people Mm -hmm. and you need to make sure that as a leader, you align those people around something bigger than themselves, right? Have them long for the immensity of the sea. Don't assign them tasks to build a ship. And so internal marketing perhaps is the way to phrase this because you're doing it more than just to your own team as a marketing lead. You're doing it around the whole company. Get up in front of that business a ton. Make sure you're documenting things internally. Make sure you're you're describing the pride you have in your work and the the pride you expect people to have. But you got to walk the walk yourself and it has to come from a place of emotion, right? It can't just be grow your Twitter followers this percent, Merriam-Webster's dictionary, it has to be, let's show the world how fun and relevant we really are. Um, I, I think back to my days at HubSpot. And one of the things that I did poorly there was we were really focused on monthly lead totals for the blog. Mm-hmm. And we really focused on the symptoms of monthly lead totals, like ranking on search, keyword research, topical things. Things, by the way, that I despise. But I didn't have the language at the time when I was a young manager to talk about anything else. Right. And the team was so panicked over monthly lead totals that that's what they latched on to. What I should have said was, let's be, I don't know, making this up on the spot here. Let's be the most inspirational or aspirational marketing blog on the planet. The one everyone looks to and says, we want to be them. Or let's be the world's go-to resource around inbound marketing. Right. Right. Because now we're orienting around serving the audience. And if you serve the audience better, the leads come. Instead of the leads first, right? So that's an example of like we're not actually motivating people using the right terminology, the right amount of internal marketing, the right inspiration. We're motivating them based on mile markers. And now the goal is get there faster through whatever means and get there cheaper. That's very interesting. Paint the picture. That's one thing that's missing on every single one of the SOPs is painting the picture what the outcome should be. Market to your yeah. own team, not yeah. in a huckstery way, right? Like we're not talking right. about like, you know, I'm doing this. You don't want pre-roll ads. no. But, George mentioned the word authenticity. Yeah. You know, now you can be an authentic, obnoxious individual, right? <laughs> if, you're, if you're actually obnoxious, you can be authentic. Like authenticity in a word is just your true self, right? right? But what we're saying coming with that authentic idea is this implication that you are inspired to do the work. You are excited about where this goes. You're trying to make a dent. You're not just trying to drive leads, right? So share that and share it gratuitously. And I think people start to see that and they fall into place. And if the language of the book can help you do that, great. But if you're like, actually, I know how to do that. Don't buy the book. Just do the work. Like that's what I care about is like actually getting this work done. Awesome. Awesome. So that was a fun little tangent, but, um, you got me on my soapbox. Really good sound bites in there. (laughs) I'm up on my soapboxes. Yeah. There you go. So, um, this week's episode is brought to you by the Impulse Creative website and marketing audits. So often people look at a shiny new website or sign up for marketing retainers with agencies without understanding what the strategy is and should be. Our audits will demystify that process and will set you up for success. Yeah, well, hey, uh, Jay, I got a question for you. And we're, by the way, entering the the Bermuda Triangle, which, (laughs) hey, that's what we do, right? We do questions. We're entering the Bermuda Triangle. And uh, I got to be honest with you, after this will be episode 39, 38 other episodes, I was never afraid to ask this question. (laughs) But this episode, I am afraid to ask this question because as you've painted the picture per se of where companies are and where companies and individuals need to get to, there could be a plethora of answers that you could give on this one. So so when we're thinking about making better decisions and, and having a system or not having a system and, and putting your best foot forward and being authentic and all of that in one ball of wax, like... Where do most people slash companies, where do you find that they get lost in even being able to achieve this? If you look at, we've talked, we've touched on it a little bit. The biggest variable in your context is you and your team, 
you don't exist anywhere else, right? So you are your unfair advantage. And so often people aren't using that fully. Or when they try to use it, they look at those who already do. A good example would be Wistia. They use their people on camera and their people are very warm and charming and quirky, right? But that's not every team. And so I go back to when we left school, we thought that expertise was how to make a great career company. I think it's self-awareness. So where people go awry is they look at what others are doing and they fail to ask what percent of that applies to me and my team. In other words, they don't know their people intimately enough, which to me is ludicrous because the people are doing the work. Without those people, the work doesn't exist. So rather than focus on the tactic or the output, focus on the people who are doing the work as a leader, and all of a sudden you can help align them, you can help market to them, you can help make sure that they're inspired to do something better than average, and most importantly, you can get proactive about what it is it is it about us that we're going to instill in this work. Um, you know, how do we bring our full selves to the work? So then who, if we take that a step further, who is the pirate to watch out for then? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the pirate who comes in all the time is but my boss, right? Mm. But my boss, but my client, but my leads, but my goals, but this external factor I don't control and I can't persuade to see the world my way. And I actually think we try to convince this person or these people backwards we are at the conclusion of where we want them to be. This is just a you know good sales, good good communication skills. We're giving them the final result of where we're at mentally and letting them fill in every step that we took to get there. I call this the green smoothie problem. Maybe I can send you guys a link. I have this whole second article unrelated to the book about if you read the book, here's how to sell people and convince them and inspire them to think better if they're not on board, right? But we, we give them where we want them to go. Hey, it's a green smoothie. You should drink it. Instead of saying, hey, George, you said you wanted to be healthy and you told me all these things and you said you believe this about being healthy and also here's what I'm thinking. It's this ingredient and this ingredient. And oh, by the way, it's a green smoothie. Want to drink it, right? We don't involve people in the idea. We don't make them co-founders of our ideas. We just try to shove through our agenda. And I think being persuasive is all about actually reversing how we articulate where we want people to go. So the pirate is, but my boss, but the ship he's riding on or she's riding on is actually our fault. We built it for them. It's like, we, we are our own worst enemies. You know what I mean? Like we don't communicate well to these people. Oh man. So, so that <laughs> section was dope. I'm just going to throw that out there <laughs> that because, because there's uh there's a thing in communication that I've paid attention to for years. And that is when somebody's telling you a list of things like, oh, man, you did great. And uh, I, I really think that you're going to be a good fit. And, uh, you know, but anything that came before that, but just wipe out and pay yep. attention to what they say after that, because that's truly what they mean. Yes. And, and, and the other thing that I heard in that section, Jay, as you were talking is, um, what, what Jay's saying is you have to listen. <laughs> you have to listen to what the people are saying. Um, you have to listen to what they want. Um, and through listening to what they want, you have to understand what they need. And then you prescribe to the need, um, which then addresses the want. Like there's totally. just, just rewind it. Just it's, rewind it's it. What, people, I'm just saying. It's very simple. It's what do they want? Communicate that to them. And if you're misaligned on that, no idea is going to matter, right? Be aligned on what they want. Be aligned on what they believe about getting what they want. Then lay out your rationale. Then lay out the idea and the cost. But we usually say, here's the idea. And their next question is, what does it cost? Or we don't like that idea because they don't get how you arrive there. What do they want? What do they believe about getting it? Then your rationale and the idea comes last. Now's the time for us to um, get you guys to sign up for our weekly show notes and monthly deep dive newsletter where you get to see some of these sound bites, these links for sure, and other resources that we think would be helpful on your quest for growth. There's something else I want to. I want to know that Remington, I watch all of your notes inside of our outline as we're doing this. He ignored. <laughs> he ignored, ignored it. Me. So because that's because you got to set up this that's about to happen, and the only way that you can set it up is you have to have the newsletter section. All the viewers and listeners know that it's time officially for Captain Killing It, where we talk about somebody who is killing it in a good way or a bad way on the interwebs or in life in this case with making – well, you could say bad decisions or good decisions. Jay, what's a great story that you want to tell around somebody who is absolutely killing it on this topic? I, I, I It's my favorite story. If you heard me on other podcasts, I can't shout these guys out enough, but it's Death Wish Coffee. 
So these, this is a company that started to fail because they were grabbing at new trends and ideas to be different without understanding why they were different. They were being rebels without a cause. And I like to joke that their switch was they became rebels with a cause, right? They, the reason they're, they're this, this, the world's strongest coffee is their tagline, but they're this anti-brand in the coffee space. They're dark black and blood red and, and white skull and crossbones bones logo does not look like a coffee brand, but Mike Brown, the founder, all he did, even though it looks crazy from the outside looking in, all he did was talk to customers every day to figure out why they were asking him for stronger and darker coffee. Because if you don't know, dark coffee is actually weaker because you roast the beans for longer. So you can't get strong and dark unless you use this bean that coffee aficionados and experts frown on called Robusta. It's a little bit more bitter. But by talking to his customers in upstate New York, he realized well, they're, they're truck drivers and entrepreneurs and construction workers. Like these people reach for coffee like a Red Bull. They want the transaction. They're not sitting down next to a brick wall writing on their Mac. You know, they're not me, right? They, they don't care about the artisanal experience. They want the transaction. So actually I can buck the trend here. I can question that conventional thinking and I'm not doing so just to throw it out and be a rebel. I'm doing so because my customer is the guide and he let that decision guide everything he did. And all of a sudden – Things started to get better. Now, it didn't happen overnight, but over the course of the last few years, Deathwish has grown from a failing single cafe to a thriving e-commerce brand. They sell millions of this stuff all over the world. Uh, they're even sending their coffee into space, so they're no longer the world's strongest. I guess it's like the galaxy's strongest or something like that. <laughs> but it, you know, if you know coffee and you appreciate it like I do, you think they're rebels and they're not. They're just constant investigators into their own specific situation and they use that information to guide them forward. And it just looks crazy from the outside if all you know is the convention. Yeah, Deathwish Coffee is definitely an acquired taste, but it's not for everyone. And they're cool with that. So I think that's a that's an excellent example. Awesome. Well, now we get towards the end of this. Jay, it has been a load of fun having you on the show. Where can folks connect with you as they start to navigate these stormy seas of best practices in your own context? Uh, the book is found at jayaconzo.com slash book. I tried to share a lot of the behind the scenes like tools and ideas that I use for making the book because I know a lot of people listening are interested in the process and the content. So I tried to share both at jayaconzo.com slash book. Uh, but I'm jay at unthinkablemedia.com. Feel free to reach out. The book uh, process is definitely – that's probably another like podcast episode in itself to have Jay back at a later date. Hey, Wayfinders, if you are listening to this on your favorite podcast app do me a favor and leave that head over to itunes leave us a rating and review five stars would be great but if you love it for four four is good too if you're watching this on youtube make sure you hit the bells the likes and subscribes all the things so we know that you're part of the community but until next time we hope that you're doing all that you can do to leave the dock of mediocrity and set sail to the sunset of your success